In this talk, I'm going to talk about obesity as a potentially polyrational problem. Now, what do I mean by that? Um, with the rise of neoliberalism from the 1980s onwards in the Western world and elsewhere, economic rationality has pervaded all aspects of life in the world. And most policy-related understandings of obesity are usually framed in this way. So, how the emergence and persistence of obesity in late modern society that we have now um, is understood by institutions, agencies, corporations and people according to different worldview so is underpinned by often differing and sometimes conflicting rationalities. Um, the most simple model of obesity, the energy balance model, makes those particular models attractive for policymakers, but they've had poor efficacy when used to support the individualist approaches to obesity control that predominate under neoliberalism. That is to say, we put personal responsibility for personal energy balance um, and preventing obesity or curing obesity, reducing obesity, while there are many structural factors that make it very difficult to avoid. So obesity science and policy contribute to policy cacophony um, as long as they and other constituencies with interests in obesity operate from differing worldviews without understanding the rationalities that underpin the models of obesity that are not their own. The most easily intuited rationality in present-day life is economic, and this has become naturalised in framings of obesity since the 1990s. Obesity science emerged from concerns about human energetics, heredity and genetics, physiological and morphological plasticity, and from the sociology and anthropology of the body. Other disciplines have additionally laid claim to being obesity sciences as the obesity phenomenon grew since the 1980s. Epidemiology, human ecology, economics, epigenetics, microbiology, complexity science, to name a few, have all legitimate reasons for engaging with obesity. Obesity as science has informed knowledge of obesity at all levels, from the environmental and ecological and the microstructural levels that inform nutrition transition in the recent uh, emergences of obesity and, and the global food system. Um, they've also informed the political and governmental domains that economics and epidemiology informed the societal and social and familial levels and the individual organ system and molecular levels that inform human life history and evolution. Obesity has also been framed as being a more broadly complex and multi-level issue and many of the structural issues and macro-level factors that governments regulate or which may indeed be on the control of individual governments to regulate, are now under scrutiny by obesity science. The framing of obesity as a complex scientific problem reflects the breadth of disciplines now trying to make sense of it, and the difficulty of trying to discipline obesity with any singular approach. Rationalities not just economic rationality, rationalities form the disciplinary worldviews that make implicit how obesity and its contributing factors should be understood, should be modelled and acted upon by different interests, including scientific, governmental and corporate ones. 
These rationalities vary according to actor in obesity science policy and intervention, and incompatibilities in rationality of approach by different agents limit the extent to which effective interdisciplinary work in obesity research and policy can be done. So this talk is going to examine how models of obesity differ and or interrelate with each other according to rationality. Um, I'll also examine the extent to which polyrational approaches might help in identifying overlapping and conflicting rationalities in obesity science policy and intervention. The idea of polyrationality was developed by Thomas Hartman at Utrecht University in 2010. This was to examine the relationships among different rationalities in negotiating the complex interactions of different agents and interests in flood control and urban planning. What works in urban planning might also work for obesity, given that there are aspects of urban planning and urban life that are clearly related to obesity. So I'm going to explore this here. So, to think now in terms of multiple rationalities and not just economic rationality. The way in which obesity is framed by any research discipline influences what's important to know about it, influences how the research is done, and the types of evidence that are deemed to be important. The model that's formed the basis of most obesity policy and intervention across decades is that of energy balance which is underpinned by Weberian theoretical rationality, scientific rationality. The number of rationalities at play in energy balance increase, however, when individual, cross-generational, environmental and evolutionary perspectives are incorporated into it, not just the individual. Ob obesogenic environments are essential to energy balance explanations of obesity also. Without them, and without the widespread availability of cheap, energy-dense food, Genetics and epigenetic predispositions to obesity wouldn't result in obesity. Obesogenic environments are characterized as being both physical and social, as promoting weight gain and not being conducive to weight loss. They emerge from actions of corporations and governments whose Weberian practical and formal rationalities underpin modernity and modernization. The need to have bureaucracies to regulate their complex activities and to be able to turn a profit, to have the profit motive, are things that underpin how they behave. Policy that uses the obesogenic environment construct shifts the focus from individual choice to more structural matters and is implicit about the extent to which the state and other macro-level factors and actors configure the fabric and texture of everyday life. The obesogenic environment's model takes as implicit the view that patterns of diet and exercise are socially, institutionally and infrastructurally configured, making such environments also the outcomes of formal and practical rationalities. Far from limiting the scope of possible intervention, this idea has inspired discussion of the need for societal change, not only in eating but in patterns of time use. Research into the psychology and neurophysiology of appetite seeks to understand energy balance through the regulation of food intake, whether it's conscious or otherwise. Appetite, eating, satiety and satiation are physiologically regulated by a complex system of neural pathways and endocrine mechanisms that involve the brain, the nervous system and the gut. 
The predisposition to obesity can potentially result from any pathological malfunction or lack of adaptation to changing ecologies in this complex system. The global food system, a driver of changing nutritional environments, is underpinned by economic and practical rationality with the food corporations that dominate it taking the most appropriate courses of actions to meet their aims, which are ultimately economic. Food corporations make more profit if people eat more and or eat more expensively, but economic rationality in food production does not automatically square with optimal nutritional health, especially among those of low socioeconomic status. From individual energy intake and expenditure to the global food system, the drivers of obesity are thus diffuse, global, with many interacting actors and factors and multiple rationalities. Economics and epidemiology combined are perhaps the only effective macro-level modelling instruments available for the regulation of population obesity. Epidemiological reporting and modelling provide the basis for understanding the scale of population obesity and its future trajectory, while economists are able to model the inputs of obesity on national and regional economies by incorporating epidemiological data. Global changes in the dietary and nutritional environment through the operation of expert systems have led to the emergence of obesity and the chronic diseases associated with it. These changes have their roots in history and human life history and are driven by modernization and globalization. Because the global and ecological nature of the expert systems that serve everyday life can't be regulated by any single agent, however large, it's difficult to see how obesity might be regulated by singular actions, even by nation-states. Even if they could, the relationship between science, policy and ethics remain crucial to determining what those actions might be. Both the production of obesity and its policy regulation involve discursive relationships between biology and the social sciences, including politics and economics. Obesity may be arrived at by seemingly endless potential pathways involving countless relationships among predispositions and risk factors, but understanding these relationships and elucidating possible pathways to obesity requires under interdisciplinary work on relationships between biological and cultural models of obesity and body fatness. The study of these is relatively new, although the study of biological phenomena with social correlates has a deeper history. Any dichotomous position of nature versus nurture in interdisciplinary obesity science is problematic because any such positioning locates biological human lives and their social relations into separate domains according to disciplinary preference and continues to silo obesity research. The social and the biological are entwined in obesity policy and intervention, as the following examples I'm going to give you will show. Biology may help deliver better pharmaceutical interventions for obesity into the future, but the regulation of new drugs falls into social and societal domains. Biology can also inform improved obesity surgery, but this is not a solution to obesity in itself, 
because there are both social and biological correlates and consequences of such, such surgery. Furthermore, social interventions employing energy balance models may vary in success according to socioeconomic status of the people um, that are uh, being intervened upon. While the biology underpinning obesity production at the individual level is indisputable, the construction of obesogenic environments is almost entirely social, as are the globalizing forces that drive nutrition transition. Thus, translating obesity science into obesity policy requires an acknowledgement of biocultural relationships. According to Elizabeth Shove at Lancaster University in the UK, the relationship between research and policy is mutual. Policymakers fund and legitimize lines of inquiry which generate results which they can handle and which are consequently defined as concrete, achievable and manageable. The result is a self-fulfilling cycle of credibility in which evidence of relevance and utility helps in securing additional resources for research and intervention, building capacity in some areas but not in others. In addition, the policy arena is not of a piece. With respect to obesity, um, in the UK, uh, the earlier Labour administrations of Blair and Brown acknowledged this in the call for a cross-departmental committee on obesity, after foregrounding the complexity of obesity with foresight obesities. Those are some bright lights. Um, in other arenas, you know, that kind of approach simply hasn't been taken. Obesity, as I've already said, is a late modern phenomenon. We live in late modern society. Late modernity is characterized by global capitalism, the privatization of services, the spread of individualism and a reliance on the effective functioning of a vast array of expert systems that provide and maintain infrastructures such as those of water, transport, communications, health and food. Most individuals, most of the time, think little, if anything, about most of these systems, relying on often unconscious trust. Without placing trust in them, individually complex lives would be almost impossible to live, as there would be a need to continually negotiate their operations. The interactions of many of these expert systems may have collectively, if inadvertently, contributed to population obesity as I hope to show in the, the examples that follow. The easy availability of cheap energy-dense food is a product of the globally expert food system. The sedentariness, which is associated with obesity, sitting down, not moving much, is a product of nationally and locally complex urban planning systems which prioritize motor car transport above other forms and of desk chair configurations for computer-facilitated work rather than standing desks, which would make just as much sense. Just-in-time supply systems are facilitated by expert systems that streamline business and work and make consumerism easy, but lead to individual lives that also operate in a just-in-time way. The outputs of lean thinking and operations and business systems are likely to contribute to obesity through consumerism and stress. Complex ecological energetic relationships are fundamental 
to the function of both nature and society, and the regulation of obesity requires a fundamental rethinking of humanity's energy relationships. Such a rethink would require recalibration of many expert systems, which might not be easily done without unpredictable consequences elsewhere in society. In calling individuals to control their own body size, and that of the young children when they have them, using energy balance rhetoric attempts to responsabilize consumer citizens to act in their best non-obesogenic interests in a marketplace of products and services generated by interactive expert systems. There are several reasons why this doesn't work generally at the societal level. First of all, trust in individual expert systems, such as the food system, might be misplaced if these systems encourage maladaptive behaviours, such as overeating in the case of the food system, and an over-reliance on the motor car in the case of the transport system. Secondly, the body size outcomes of individuals negotiating expert systems in everyday life can't be easily predicted, making the regulation of such systems for, for obesity control very difficult. Thirdly, individuals might insulate some social and consumer practices from the health values they accept and apply most of the time, making obesity an outcome of personally boundary decisions in a world of personally uncontrollable expert systems. The success or failure of obesity regulation is as dependent on technical issues as on structural and behavioural ones. To enact obesity policy, it's important to know many things, including what healthy eating and healthy diets are, what constitutes healthy body size and composition, what types and amounts of physical activity count for obesity control, what constitutes an obesogenic environment, and what aspects of socioeconomic status and capital are most related to obesity susceptibility. To be able to responsabilize individuals, parents and schools, the answers to such questions have to be translated into guidelines and turned into procedures and practices. The idea of evidence-based policymaking is common in government, but its practice is varied. According to Siobhan Campbell and her colleagues, evidence can provide the rationale for an initial policy direction, an understanding of the nature and an extent of the problem, suggestions for possible solutions, an insight into the likely impacts in the future, and motivation for adjustments to a policy or the way that's to be in, it's to be implemented. However, this is in contrast with the reality of policy making and delivery which is also described by her and her colleagues as being messy and unpredictable, where evidence is one factor among others, including the political imperative to act on an issue, and where response to media and world events is important. There's little surprise, therefore, that the efficacy of obesity research and evidence-based policymaking is mixed. Turning now to complexity, from expert systems and policy. Where does this sit in this set of relationships? High population obesity rates emerge when social, cultural and political processes allow biological predispositions to obesity to be realized. Such processes are complex, intricative and multi-level. Complexity can operate at different levels. Chunglin Kwa of the University of Amsterdam has framed it as being either romantic or baroque complexity, 
Romantic complexity looks at relationships at the macro level and is upward looking. Baroque complexity is downward looking and in obesity science, different disciplines can represent their particular approaches to obesity or obesity predispositions as discrete complex systems in themselves. Baroque complex systems include obesogenic environments, the genetics of obesity, gene-environment interactions in obesity productions, early life programming of physiology and body composition, epigenetics and body fatness, appetite behaviour and food production and distribution. Baroque complexity is also involved in economic influences on food availability, psychological influences on food choice, the social, societal, political and economic factors that drive inequalities in obesity rates, and the interplay of forces that shape obesity policy. Baroque complex systems, however, are often embedded in romantically complex ones. The physiological regulation of food intake in relation to an obesogenic food supply involves complexity at both levels through the activities of several expert systems and different governmental departments, agentive organisations, including weight management groups that are oriented towards the individual, and corporations, including food and pharmaceutical companies. The search for pharmacological solutions to obesity is another example of Baroque within Romantic complexity. This particular field is characterised by technical problems over safety, efficacy, abuse and adverse effects, marketability and profitability in the negotiated space between public and private interests within the expert system of medicine. In 2013, the American Medical Association's recognition of obesity as a disease was an encouragement to continue research to finding a more targeted and more effective anti-obesity drug by pharmaceutical companies. Such research has a checkered history, however, with many drugs marketed for weight loss subsequently being removed from market for unintended or undesired consequences. <coughs> there is a history, and I'll describe some of that. Thyroid extract, for example, was marketed as an anti-obesity drug in the 1890s, that far back. Its use for body fat reduction was soon discovered, dis uh, discontinued when it was found to result in decreased muscle and bone mass, as well as of fat, among non-thyroid deficient obese subjects. In the early 20th century, dinitrophenol was marketed for weight loss, but with inadequate clinical testing. Skin rash, cataracts, neuropathy followed its use, and it too was discontinued. In the 1930s, shock horror amphetamine was identified as a weight-inducing compound and was sold as an over-the-counter weight loss remedy. By the 1960s, evidence showed that it was addictive rather than habituating like caffeine. That was asserted when the drug was first introduced. It was habituating, not too different from coffee and caffeine. So when it was shown it was addictive, it was withdrawn for weight loss purposes by the 1970s. In the 1980s, a combination of fenfluramine and fentamine, fenfen as it was known, was shown to be a very effective weight loss agent, and it was used very widely across the United States. However, 
1997, some consumers of this medication began to develop valvular heart disease and the US Food and Drug Administration withdrew it after legal damage payments to consumers exceeded $13 billion. Right now, there's only one FDA-approved treatment for obesity, Orlistat, which is a lipase inhibitor, and can produce sustainable weight loss. These medications come, wax, wane, come and go. It's not an easy issue. Corporate rhetoric about weight loss medication and its development is inevitably optimistic. So the economic rationality of the pharmaceutical industry demands this. Um, but there's increasing appreciation by researchers of the difficulty of such development. In large part, this is because of the baroque complexity of the physiological appetite and energy balance systems as they relate to weight loss. Anti-obesity drug discovery lies overwhelmingly in the domain of pharmaceutical corporations which operate within the expert system of medicine. Governments represent a regulatory component of the system, overseeing the enforcement of safety standards for population use towards the eventual production and rollout of safe drugs. It's not a trivial role, especially when there's a high demand for anti-obesity medication, as in many high-income countries, and a corporate thirst for profit. Continuing with the Baroque complexity embedded within romantic complexity, food systems are, not a, are another example. At the macro level, the global food system was well formed, if not yet consolidated prior, prior to World War II, and was sub subsequently manipulated by governments to operate as an instrument of geopolitical influence during the Cold War. The governance of food shifted largely from state control into corporate hands with the neoliberal turn of the 1980s. At the micro level, food production and consumption both lie within the domains of food science and technology, agriculture, plant and animal breeding, the neurophysiology of taste, psychology, physiology, among other disciplines, each itself being baroque complex in its own way. At the macro level, the romantic complexity of the global food system can be described in terms of sets of relationships, but it can't be clearly articulated. In part, this is because much of it is in corporate hands with information that is not openly shared. When combined, the romantic and baroque complexities of the global food system defy understanding, let alone regulation. In the absence of clear understandings of the complexities of food production, processing and consumption, there are but a small number of policy levers that governments can use to make food availability to a national population more healthy. None of these can be evaluated, for example, in the way that a medical intervention can, with randomised controlled trials. In the absence of clear food policy outcomes in relation to obesity at the macro level, Obesity policy falls back easily onto individualised responsibility for consumption. In the United Kingdom, obesity policy has attempted to link individualism with corporate responsibility for the safety of food and the possible health impacts of foods on consumers. In this particular case, 
The government offers advice and guidance to improve labelling and consumer information and encourages businesses to include information on and with their food products so that people can make healthier choices, thus linking public health strategies with market consumerism. This was facilitated in the Change for Life programme in the UK uh, as a way of catalyzing social change towards reducing overweight and obesity. This came in, uh, in, uh, in the late 2000s. Change for Life sought consumer-driven change using advertising to enlighten consumers and stimulate them to drive change in the market. While an instrument of government, private industry was involved in Change for Life through sponsorship. This presented opportunities for publicity, product placement and advertising and permitted corporate participation in obesity reduction projects. The Food Network Responsibility Deal, which followed it, sought to replace responsibility on the food industry to drive change in food consumption pattern with the caveat that individual consumers were framed as being ultimately responsible for their own consumption behaviours. In all of these approaches, the UK government avoided macro-level interventions because there was no clear evidence of their likely effectiveness on reducing obesity rates. Another example of a obesity as baroque into romantic complexity lies with the understanding of obesogenic environments and their construction. Obesogenic environments emerged largely since the 1980s as an unplanned outcome of activities of multiple expert systems, which became increasingly linked and entangled through the use of networked and interactive computing from this time onwards. Such systems are designed to make urban environments stable, clean, safe and efficient to live and work in, among other things. <coughs> Many previously keystone functions of state, such as transport, food, water and sanitation, were increasingly given over to corporate control from the 1980s, with the growth of neoliberalism at the time when many of these utilities and services are becoming, were becoming reconfigured within expert systems. Thus, the participation of governments and expert systems declined, almost as they ballooned in importance. Policies that aim to regulate aspects of obesogenic environments through the romantic complexity of urban planning, for example, are poorly resourced relative to the corporations and agencies that form significant parts of expert systems that inadvertently created those environments in the first place. Regulating the industries that provide the material basis for obesogenic environments is politically difficult, largely because they're part of the entanglement of expert systems that provide the material infrastructure of late modern society. A characteristic of an expert system is that the outcomes of making a significant change to any part of it are difficult to predict. Expert systems also employ many people and any intervention to such a system may carry e important economic costs. One soft policy approach is to tweak or adjust expert systems in ways that don't threaten their stability. This is the basis of the Food Network Responsibility Deal in the UK, to which a minority of companies and corporations signed up to some aspect of to the present time. A slightly tougher policy undertaking is the taxation of sugar-sweetened beverages, 
which is gaining traction in many parts of the world. This involves a relatively small adjustment to the global food system, but even this is strongly resisted by corporations. The regulation of interactive expert systems towards healthy weight for the populations they serve is difficult to negotiate, and it's far easier to focus on individual responsibility. Such approaches to obesity are ones of enablement, education and individualism set within globally expanding neoliberal frameworks that focus on markets and profit. Neoliberalism and globalization, in turn, set the conditions for nutrition transition, as observed in recent decades. The rise of, of high-energy-dense foods that are available almost globally. This is largely driven by the activities of the globally expert food system and is difficult for nation-states to regulate against. Um, however, the taxation of sugar-sweetened beverages sets an example of something that is possible to regulate against, despite a lot of opposition in the recent past. There are local oppositions to the development of nutrition transmission, especially in Latin America, where indigenous agricultural resistance to the global food system has been successful in, in feeding people healthily. In Brazil, another example, recently adopted dietary recommendations have challenged the production of low nutrient, dense and, uh, no, no nutrient density, high nutrient density foods by the global food system. Beyond Latin America, food-based corporations in Italy offer alternatives to global food production, manufacture and distribution systems. Such resistance might only be successful in the long term by local and national food productors, producers if they create expert food systems of their own, however. This might be possible in larger nations such as Brazil, but it would still require infrastructural devices, including computing, the internet, machinery, that are produced within the neoliberal political economic system, so catch-22. Expert systems are as embedded in society as neoliberalism. They're effective in making the physical aspects of life run smoothly, especially in high-income countries. Daily engagement with complex systems is conducive to the production of obesity because of the convenience they generate by making the physical aspects of life run smoothly, making energy-dense foods cheap, but also because of the psychological stress and inequality experienced by many living in the neoliberal societies that have thrived with the growth of such systems. Governments can, however, call upon a range of rationalities in response to increasing obesity rates. One approach might be to consider obesity regulation in the same way as some other locally complex systems. Obesity and urban form have been linked, and it's not a big stretch to think about the polyrationalities of obesity regulation in similar ways to the regulation of urbanism and urban planning. <coughs> so, turning now to complexity and rationality. Complexity has left an imprint on obesity science, while obesity policy has struggled to turn complexity analyses of obesity into effective action. This might be at the heart of why complexity approaches to obesity are now little talked of. 
The uncertainty of outcome that is inherent in intervening in complex systems means that even powerful actors and world-renowned experts can't predict how uncertainty and information, action and perception will manifest as responses to particular obesity-related policies. For wicked problems that emerge from complexity, no solution may be predictable or optimal. Indeed, such wicked problems may have no definitive solutions, but may only be managed through settlements that may work only until the problem reasserts itself in a new form. Obesity is situated in a field of competing interests and behaviours where meanings of the phenomenon are highly contested and is in part an outcome of the actions of interactive expert systems at societal, social and individual levels. The corporations, agencies, governments and institutions that form components of these systems act using a range of different rationalities, incompatibilities in which may contribute to obesity production. Polyrational approaches to the regulation of obesity would require understanding these rationalities, their relationships to each other and the extent to which they predispose to obesity. So, how do we attempt to understand different rationalities? Anti-obesity policies to date generally reflect the landscape of policymaking, advice, political pressure, values, advocacy and corporate interests as much as, if not more than, the landscape of evidence. The power of corporations and those supported by them remains largely unchallenged in obesity policy in the UK. Evidence can, at one extreme, be given strong weight by policy actors, or at another extreme, be ignored. I have a strong conviction that evidence in policymaking is essential, but that it's important to consider carefully how evidence is used in the regulation of obesity. It can be used to help improve the understanding of an issue, it can be used to influence policy thinking and assist in the communication, and can be used in the defense of decisions. It can be mapped onto different stages of the policy process in its creation, development, implementation, and its justification. Robust evidence can give politicians and policymakers confidence in their decisions and an ability to defend those decisions. There are many conflicting and competing approaches taken by the disciplines of obesity science, and the obesity science is directly helpful to policymaking as uneven. Kelly Brownell has noted that the science to support particular policies may often be non-existent. Where does that leave us? There's also great inequality in the various types of stakeholders involved in policy, obesity policy, obesity research and obesity intervention. To counter the very unlevel playing field of, of policy making, a form of policy and planning called collaborative rationality has been proposed. This requires an equalization of power among all stakeholders, something that's currently impossible in, in obesity science and policy. With respect to obesity science, some stakeholders do not reach the policy discussion table at all. With respect to obesity policy, when stakeholders meet, their dialogues can't change the deeper power structures that shape the ecologies and environments in which everyday life takes place and which can contribute to obesity. Furthermore, 
while the wickedness of obesity as a problem can now be easily recognised, there are many different rationalities that underpin the interests of the various parties with stake, with a stake in mitigating obesity. So, for example, corporations only share some of the rationalities that underpin the work of government and often challenge regulation if there's a conflict of worldviews and they're big enough to do so. The embedding of energy balance discourse in, in obesity policy and regulation links it to Weberian formal rationality, although the science approaches that use energy balance models to seek to create commercial outputs for its control are underpinned by theoretical, practical and economic rationalities. These particular rationalities can gel straightforwardly in the translation of science into policy, but there are odds with the evolutionary and substantive rationalities that predispose people to overeat and put on weight. Obesity genetics is underpinned by Weberian theoretical rationality, but with commercial investment in gene therapy approaches to obesity, for example, is in also in the world of practical rationality, of profit-making, sometimes at the expense of theoretically rational science, where simply, you know, being able to offer dispassionate evidence is the most important thing. With respect to the global food system, expert, interactive global food system, the rationalities that underpin it are manifold, and they involve the coexistence of often widely differing interests. The dominance of economic rationality in this domain, however, is key to the construction of obesogenic environments locally, nationally and internationally. Obesity is an unplanned outcome of the operations of the global food system, as well as of the urban and technological correlates of modernity and modernization. In order to regulate obesity at the nation-state level, measurement and surveillance are brought in almost as a default option. Many countries, including the United Kingdom and the United States, engage in constant surveillance of population body size. Resistance to such surveillance, which has occurred with parents declining involvement of their children in the UK National Child Measurement Programme, is underpinned by the substantive rationalities of individuals, groups and sometimes institutions that find fault with such measurement, that digitally it's an invasion of privacy, it's an invasion of human rights. Often the most privileged people in society use their status to opt out of obesity surveillance, making resistance to obesity monitoring a matter of social inequality. In the United Kingdom, the vast majority of privately educated children don't take part in the National Child Measurement Programme. In the United States, there's no obesity data on the citizens of Medina King County in Washington State, where Bill Gates has his main residence. The production of inequalities in obesity rates is an outcome of a mismatch between practical and substantive rationalities of the barbarian kind of people for example, how individuals of low socioeconomic status balance and budget, feed themselves and their families, as well as finding meaning in life beyond just making do, 
and the economic and Weberian theoretical and formal rationalities, formal rationalities of nation states and corporations, of economics, profit making, bureaucracies, and so on. The palatable, highly energy dense foods, affordable, especially to those of low socioeconomic status in high income countries, are products of the economic and Weberian formal, rational, formal rationalities of the global food system that has grown and consolidated since World War II. Multiple rationalities are enacted when obesity policy attempts to regulate food systems as there are many competing interests. Governments seek to have a healthy and economically productive population. Food corporations seek profit. And citizens respond to policies and market forces with emotion, local logic, tradition and custom, as well as in relation to their personal economic realities. For food corporations, economic rationality is paramount, while governments attempt to balance economic and formal rationalities in their everyday practices. Individual rationalities concerning consumption, the body and citizenship are in constant negotiation and it's often evolutionary rationality that underpins the likelihood of overeating relative to biological need. Nutrition transition is global and cross-generational and often invokes clashes of rationalities at the local level through considerations of what foods are appropriate to consume in what circumstances. Epigenetics and developmental plasticity share evolutionary rationalities in as much as parental effects on reproductive fitness can operate through adaptive and context-dependent transgenerational transmission of adaptive phenotypes. Obesity is an outcome of such evolutionary rationality, especially when food is abundant and its use is largely uncoupled from reproduction. Public policy instrumentation and its choice of models and modes of operation is part of a governmental rationality of methods. Evidence-based policymaking emerged in the past two decades or so as an attempt to anchor policymaking in evidence unsullied by political position or the consideration of values within a framework of bounded rationality, that is, decisions will never be perfect, there's no such thing as a perfect economic decision, um, <clears throat> rather they're bounded by time and information that's available. If obesity is produced at the individual level through the engagement of bounded rationality in many, many everyday practices, Policy is also made under conditions of bounded rationality, often with incomplete information, a limited ability to assimilate information if not accessibly packaged, and of limited time. The dominance of economic rationality in the production of cheap food calories is clear at all levels, as are the psychological and evolutionary rationalities of food consumption and patterns of behaviour that lead to overconsumption. Local food availability in most of the world has become dependent on the globally expert food system, which is beyond the control of any agency, whether governmental or corporate. The expert interactive systems of the late modern world are ecologies in which any significant change might have unforeseen consequences, particularly on the economy. Nobody wants to hurt the economy. In recognition of this, governments of whatever persuasion are usually careful in exercising their regulatory powers in relation to them.
polyrational approaches allow minimally applied regulation to work to best effect, preferably through negotiation to find clumsy solutions. What are clumsy solutions? These are inherent to the network governance practiced by rural societies in many places in the world, in traditional societies, but not something that we're well versed in using in, 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 in complex society, complex government. So, how do you regulate water in rice growing area in, 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 in Bali? How do you regulate the environment for maximum food production in the Arctic and in, in, in Latin America? Um, you work out, negotiate this with different agencies to work out the, the best possible fit, which may not suit everybody perfectly, but will be best for all, if far from perfect. In relation to floodplain management in high-income countries, human impacts can include disruption of transport and of economic activity, and the flooding of homes and work-related buildings. A number of insurances might protect different stakeholders according to their rationality, protecting landowners ex against extreme floods, but allowing them to sell inundation rights, allowing insurance to be sold and reducing state intervention in extreme flooding because landowners have legitimate claims because of their insurance. However, if the state would remain central in its regulation of the obligation to insure, um, Communities also play a key role in local land and river management. So something as simple as river management isn't simple at all. We've seen it firsthand uh, in the city of Oxford and surrounding areas how flooding has created a lot of problems in the last decade or so and polyrational approaches are being now taken to, uh, to try and uh, uh, to, to, to regulate them. Where water management and urban planning operate or try to operate in polyrational approaches in some places, polyrationality might also be a useful approach to obesity regulation. Like river management, the problem of control of human body fatness in populations is complex. It depends on historical and geographical givens and involves multiple stakeholders. In relation to river management, Thomas Hartmann in Germany sets out a series of insurances against natural hazards protecting the different stakeholders according to their rationality. For obesity management, rather than an intervention ladder which, is, which, which, uh, which, which can, be, can be used, a framework of insurances could be put in place against the worst excesses of existing practices that predispose to obesity. One approach might be to count the full economic, ecological, and environmental cost of cheap food and of particular items such as sugar. Models exist for sugar and fat taxation, for example, and these could form the basis for the development of full economic, ecological, and environmental costing models for repricing and reformulation of foods for better population health. Sounds radical, but actually this is not new at all. In 1975-76, the Norwegian government put in place a farm food nutrition policy that economically promoted domestic food production and disincentivized food imports to reduce diet-related chronic disease. Another approach could be to ensure against overeating by regulating packaging and portion size in supermarkets and restaurants.
Again, it's happening now and it's being promoted as something radical and new, but it isn't new. Uh, we can think about Poland during the time of communism when restaurants were strictly, regulation, strictly regulated, especially in relation to systematic shortages of supply of meat and meat products across this era. So portion sizes were regulated in relation to supply. Another approach could be to reduce binge eating and snacking by banning eating in public places, in the same way that smoking is banned in public buildings in many jurisdictions, including the UK and most of the states of the United States. Sounds radical, but actually, is it? It's a question of you know individual versus, uh, versus, versus, versus common good. The forces that produce obesity are far bigger than individuals and individualism can resist, and might be bigger than most governments are able to control. Beyond recognising the complexity of obesity, it's important to examine the different types of rationality that underpin obesity science, commerce, government, non-governmental organisations, agencies and everyday people, so that these different societal domains might work together more effectively towards obesity regulation in a polyrational way. While there are mismatches between many of these domains, there's also striking congruence. For example, in a neoliberal world, economic rationality is important to all actors. Theoretical rationality is invoked by governments to mitigate the worst effects of economic rationality, however, but substantive rationality acts as a moral voice in ensuring that economic rationality is regulated. So you can see there's already a balance of rationalities that can be invoked and, 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 and used. People are possessed of substantive and evolutionary rationalities in addition to practical rationality, that is, just getting by in the everyday. That's what makes them different from organisations and institutions. People have culture, people have, have, uh, 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 have uh, social consciences, people have uh, effective ties to other people, they form communities and so on. Makes them different from organisations and institutions who are bounded by the need to make profit, practical rationality, the use of science, theoretical rationality, and other forms of rationality to make them seem logical um, and, uh, and uh, operate without regard to, 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 to individual people. Obesity production and regulation in any population is influenced by the extent to which these people-based rationalities differ from those of governments and of corporations. There are many loops within this scheme of rationalities the theoretical rationality of medical research is underpinned by economic rationality in funding and in the production of marketable anti-obesity remedies. The Weberian formal bureaucratic rationality of corporations is underpinned by economic rationality, the need to turn a profit. The theoretical rationality of governments is focused largely on balancing the national budget, which is again economically rational. Obesity can't be fixed by understanding rationalities alone, but they offer a clearer picture of the problem and why obesity remains a complex problem. We are all implicated in both the problem and the possible solutions to it. By taking a rationalities approach to obesity, um, 
we can identify a number of gaps that hinder the regulation of obesity. People need to be interested in and engaged with good theoretical rationality to be open to obesity science and its messages, that is the working of science, dispassionate science, good dispassionate science, as well as to bear informal rationality to be able to understand obesity interventions, how you might you scientifically intervene to improve things. Obesity science needs to be able to engage more effectively in the discourses of Weberian formal rationalities that governments and bureaucracies use to make science more amenable to policy formation and intervention. Governments, obesity science and corporations need a better understanding of the substantive rationalities of people, that is, their emotions, their psychology, beyond influencing them to behave in particular ways through bounded and bounded rationalities. Hope in this talk that I've been able to lay bare some of the rationalities of different types of approaches to obesity that science and policy use implicitly towards an improved understanding of both of them and in the hope that one can move towards clumsy solutions, towards polyrational approaches to, to, to things that are uh, need to be negotiated and, and uh, not uh, uh, uniform in, uh, in their understanding. Thank you.